Okay, Calvin, ready? This is take one. Oh, God. Quiet on the set. Okay, I'm quiet. Stand by. Standing. You ready? Ready. And action. So then my doctor said to me, you got to stop putting that Farkle cup up your butt. It's not how you play the game. Hello and welcome to the, uh, to the, let's start that over. Ah, <laughs> uh, this is take two. Take two. I'm not, I got the, the jokes in the bag. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the You Show Show. It is the show where you show things. I am Kelvin Lazen McMurray and today I am joined by my very, 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 very good friend, Michael Graff. Mike, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Thank Hi. you for having me. Thanks for being here. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I, I, I've got a little frog in my throat, so um, uh, I apologize. I actually, it makes me sound, you know, my voice is a little bit deeper now, so it's got this more raspy, sexy Lauren Bacall thing going on. Ab- so. Absolutely. Too much footballs, too much of the sports, <laughs> and now you sound like... It, but it's kind of fitting for uh, the movie that you picked. It kind of fits in that theme of everything, so uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but... Um, but Mike, you uh, you are you are a good friend. We are celebrating this January. It's currently December. This January, I did the math, and we'll have known each other for eight years this January, which is pretty. Oh wow! Pretty crazy, yeah. I did. Wow. Yeah, it's 2012 when I met you. So yeah. That's crazy. But Mike is the. You are the owner. Uh, you are the. Uh, a Emmy award-winning writer and director of Spot Filmworks. So if anybody would like to check out. Uh, Mike's work, please head over to spotfilmworks.com. Um, do you do any other social platforming with your with your company? Well, it's uh, I've I've the last year or so I've I've kind of been pivoting in another direction. So I've actually besides spotfilmworks.com, mm-hmm. that's kind of the home for my life as a commercial director and working and working in advertising. Uh, I'm also a feature film writer. Yep. And I have um, a website called graphrights.com. Okay. Uh, it's new. It's still kind of in work in progress, but um, I've got a couple of, I've won a couple of cool awards and accolades and stuff. And I thought, oh boy, I should probably, <laughs> I should probably um, uh, put something out there about that part of my, my life. Yeah. So, well, and I know, like, yeah, you've been you've been doing uh, you've been doing a ton of writing this year. The the probably only silver lining to this goddamn pandemic. So, um, uh, anything 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 that you want to talk about on that front, or just check out the site? Yeah, I um I I am, am real excited, uh, and I don't even know if I told you this uh, two weeks ago. I was named one of the top 25 screenwriters to watch in 2021. Dude, shit, yeah. Dude, by uh, the International Screenwriters Association. Dude. Uh, 80,000 80, members strong International Screenwriters Association. So um, I'm kind of flying high on that. Oh, I, I bet. Uh, I, uh, I've got uh, two new screenplays that I finished. Um, I'm negotiating with a... a a producer, a former executive at Disney Studios um, for the Last Indian War, an, an older screenplay that you know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been kind of a, 
it's been an interesting year um, working, you know, kind of pivoting towards writing and, and concentrating on that, which That's is awesome. always kind of my, my first love, kind of long storm, long form storytelling. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I know, yeah, I know you've been writing like a madman and you've been submitting a lot too. I've been seeing, and we've talked about it and I've seen a lot on like your, your personal Facebook about a lot of the, the awards and things that have been going on. So that's, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. I wish we had like a live studio audience. I'd put the applaud sign on right now, but uh, unfortunately <laughs> it's just you and me. So I can, I could get Nat in here. Like congrats, Mike. Um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> she, she'll fucking kill yeah, me she'll really she'll really appreciate that <laughs> yeah that's 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 what she signed up for um well welcome yeah thanks for being here today so obviously um today we're gonna we're gonna talk about movies and i'm really excited my my first my first guest my friend ian he picked uh he picked music uh to talk about and um I love music. I I soak up as much music as I can, but I, man, I I don't really know how to talk about music. I'm a person where like I tap my foot and I liked it. It was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so that was a little tough for me to talk about, but we, you know we got through it. And then my friend Zeke picked um, she picked a, a TV shows to to talk about. And and similar thing. I'm not a huge TV aficionado. I, I enjoy television, but I, I'm not a you know I'm not an expert by any means. And I'm not an expert at film either. But it's at least like the one thing I technically did go to school for. So um, so I'm pretty I'm pretty excited today. Uh, so we're ta- we're talking about movies. Yeah, I'm I'm a movie nerd. I'm like I'm a film nerd. So this is I mean this was right up my alley. It's uh, I love all things all things film and all things movie related. And it's like, I can go down the deepest rabbit hole with you on this subject matter. So. Oh yeah. I could, I could find you in a bar passed out on the bar in a drunken stupor, wake you up and you could recite like three movie facts right off the top of your head. So yeah. Oh, for sure. Which has actually happened. I was going to say that's probably happened at least once in our, in our time knowing, to, knowing each other. Well, um, I guess um, the the movies the the film that you picked uh, today to talk about that I watched that I really liked uh, was Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Uh, yeah. What was it? Nineteen fifty eight. I want to say nineteen fifty eight. Nineteen fifty eight. And yeah. so then, in line of that, I wanted to pick something that was uh, kind of categorically in the same era um and on what i would consider an equal equal level of awesomeness and so for you to watch um i had selected paths of glory by my boy stanley kubrick yeah and you know it was really what was really interesting about that and i mean i hadn't really given it any thought you i mean you said pick a film and that was kind of top of my mind Mm -hmm. um it kind of loosely relates to one of the screenplays i i just finished writing um but one of the th- things that really struck me is that both those films, both Touch of Evil and Paths of Glory, came out within a year of each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paths of Glory came out in 1957, mm-hmm. and uh, Touch of Evil came out in 1958, and they couldn't be uh, farther apart yeah. in in style, content, tone, uh, production, mm-hmm. uh, how they were put together. I mean, one represents. Uh, um, uh, kind of the old Hollywood system of filmmaking. Yeah. And, and the other, uh, it, it, I mean, Paz of Glory is an indie film. Yeah. Uh, it was, what was really interesting about it is it was one of Stanley Kubrick's earlier films. Mm-hmm. 
and um, which he he had just finished shooting another a film noir classic that I absolutely love called The Killing, and um, it's funny because I told you when you when we first started talking about it, I had never seen Paths of Glory. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. like one of those one of those classic films that somehow slipped th- slipped through the cracks. Mm-hmm. But um, he he put the pat he and his producer put the, the same producer that he worked with on The Killing. They're in New York and uh, in, New York, in England, and they put a package together. Um, they basically financed this independently. They put a whole their whole package together. Um, they got Kirk Douglas on board. They 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 got him on board to star in it, and he was also um, he was I think also a producer on the project. And he only agreed to work with them. And, and he had uh, Kubrick had to give away a huge chunk of the profits to uh, Kirk Douglas, which I thought was great. Spartacus is about because of this movie. And um, the thing that was really cool is that they took, they put together a package, the indie filmmakers, and they went to, I think it was MGM or whoever studio and um, to say, Hey, we, we have this, you know, we have this project. We want distribution for it. We've got to start, you know, star talent in, you know, it's, which is, you know, pretty much how indie film works today. But, yep. You know, mm-hmm. this was in 1957 and it mm-hmm. was unheard of. Yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. And Touch of Evil was the complete opposite. Yes. Um, Touch of Evil started off, um, It's a, it was a universal project and Universal went to Charlton Heston with the, they had the rights to a book called um, Badge of Evil. Actually, both, both movies were based on books, um, but Badge of Evil and they had cast Orson Welles to just star in it. Oh, okay. Just star is the heavy. And Charl- they were looking for a director. And Charlton Heston, his star was on the rise. And uh, he suggested to Universal, why don't you have Orson Welles direct it? He's kind of a good director. <laughs> <laughs> and an amazing actor. Yeah. He goes, and uh, and it, there's a funny story that when uh, Charlton Heston... Uh, when he pitched Orson Welles to Universal, he was on the phone and there was just silence. Huh. Okay. It was just absolute silence. And um, then they went, okay, well, we'll think about it. And uh, they got off the phone. They called Orson Welles and they offered him to direct it. But they told him, if you're going to direct this, we're not paying you a penny more. <laughs> You're going to do this movie for the same amount that we hired you to star in it. Not one penny more. Okay. And, uh, and or- Orson Welles kind of stuck it back to him and said, if you want me to direct it, I'm going to rewrite the script. And he, he had 10 days cause they were starting pre-production. They had t- 10 days. He rewrote the entire script and, and uh, the original book, Charlton Heston plays this Mexican uh, 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 law uh, officer. Called, mm-hmm. His name is Vargas. Mm-hmm. And uh, Orson Welles, of course, changed the whole focus of the script from Vargas to his character, Quinlan, uh-huh. this, okay. corrupt, this corrupt police detective. Yeah. And uh, um, they shot it in something like 15 days or they had this crazy, insane uh, insanely quick production schedule and the whole movie was made for under a million dollars. Wow. That's crazy. Um, Orson Welles said, uh, they love the dailies they were getting in. They loved the dailies. Charlton Heston loved everything. 
Um, the studio execs loved everything. And then when it was time to edit, they would not let Orson Welles onto the lot at Universal. They locked oh, him up. They yeah. wouldn't let him edit it. This sounds about right. Oh. Yeah. Typical like movie producer thing to do. It's crazy to hear that even like back then that was happening as well. You know what I mean? Like it, that's kind of funny. It's because well, it very much happens today as well, where they're like, "Okay, thanks, bye." Well, or- Orson Welles was he, he was uh, kryptonite man. Nobody wanted to touch him. And you know, we look back at his career and we look at like uh, Citizen Kane is you know mm-hmm. one of the best American films ever made, and it was so controversial. I mean, when it came out. He, uh, I mean, the movie, he, it was an attack on, you know, one of the most powerful men in entertainment. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's an attack on William Randolph Hearst and Hearst cut off all, all publicity to, to the, to RKO pictures. I mean, that was pretty ballsy for a 24 year old kid at the time. Yes. And And, uh, there's a lot of things in touch of evil while I was watching it that I was like, how the fuck did you get away with this in 1958? Because it's a pretty ballsy movie. There's, there's some things in there that's like, wow, damn. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, so you shared touch of evil. I watched it and, um, yeah, I, 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 I really like this movie. This is, this is, this is a great film. Um, I guess one thing that I just wanted to bring up briefly before we get into it. One thing that I think I've kind of realized this recently, this, I've had this thought. I think when people talk about movies and people talk about their love for film and and the cinema and and movies, etc., I think a lot of people never talk about like what they want, what they take away from movies. What I guess what I mean by that is like my favorite thing when I watch a movie, my favorite thing more than anything else is that if I'm watching a film and it's about A, you're watching A on screen, but really the movie's about X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. That's like my that's my favorite thing in all of cinema. When you're watching the movie Alien, it's this creepy, creepy monster killing the crew off one by one by one. And it's a great horror film. But the movie, in my opinion, is about the horrors of sexuality, in particular, the horrors of rape. And that is like, see, to me, like, that's that's awesome. And that's probably my favorite thing in movies. Um, Quentin Tarantino did a great uh, interview once where he was talking about how King Kong isn't a, a movie about a giant monkey. It's not about a giant ape. Uh, it's about the African uh, slave trade. And it's like, and when you kind of think of it that way, it can change your perception of a movie. Oh, and yeah. to me, that's worth talking about. And I that's think... the beauty of cinema, yeah. Yeah, and some people like to watch movies. Just They just, they, hey, I want to put my feet up. I want to turn my brain off. I had a bad day at work. And I, I just, you know, and some people, I love it for the production. I love it for the actors. I love, you know, and, and I guess kind of... Do you have like a general, like out of the things that I'm talking about, do you have like a general thing that you typically like most out of film? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm real on board with what, what you were just saying and movies that I, I'm attracted to or that, that kind of ha- really impact me are, you know, there's a, I, there's a couple of different levels and like that, the very first level it's, um, you know, I like to be swept away into a world I don't know about or, into something new or, you know, it's uh, it's strange worlds or strange or the past or the future, you know, so, something that, 
can kind of sweep me away, kind of like the tide taking you out toward into the ocean. Uh-huh. And then, but I think what elevates a movie is when it it is about something. When it when it is when it kind of uses that initial storyline to actually dive deeper into um, the human condition or into you know something more meaningful or so, um, so that something that that reveals a, a truth in a way that maybe you didn't look at uh, originally or a way you may look at differently um, or a way that just might remind you of, of our shared humanity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's funny because uh, you know, it's like, I was thinking, you know, the interesting thing with touch of evil is it kind of, it kind of marks the end of the, the 25, 30 year ish, um, genre of film noir, mm -hmm. kind yes. of classic film noir. Um, 1958 ish is kind of the end of that era. And the era started really around world war two, um, in the early forties, um, as kind of a genre unto itself. And with, None other than Orson Welles, starring in Carol Reed's movie *The Third Man*, okay. which is about this corrupt, um, this American stuck in Berlin after the war, who is um, who basically doesn't doesn't care about his fellow man. He's just out to make a profit okay. by selling by selling black market pharmaceuticals um, to war torn Berlin, hmm. and it's you know that was that's considered one of the very first Carol Reed was the director a British filmmaker. And it was one of the very first film noirs and it was shot real stark. It was shot on location real stark. There's a famous scene where Orson Welles is being chased by his best, what who used to be his best friend um, through the sewers of Berlin. And it's, you know, this stark black and white contrast and stuff. That's cool. And it's, um, you know, I, and I, it's like, I always like, it's a, the genre of film, I'm, I'm very attracted, I think, and I don't know why, but to the, you know, one of the kind of the, the, the common threads with the noir narrative is that it's usually involves a story about a, a, a regular guy, a, yes. common, a common guy who, for whatever reason, is screwed, just gets screwed, either by screwed by the system, yep. screwed by you know, bad relationships screwed for no other reason of just being, you know, uh, a, a middle-class kind of guy just trying to make it. And, um, I've always wondered, like, I've, I've been fascinated by that story. You know, I like other genres too, mm -hmm. but, um, I think there's something, there's some kind of universalness to like, no matter how hard you try, I think everybody in their lives goes through stretches where it's just like, fuck man i what the hell yeah it's like i i try as hard as i can to do the right thing and i still got screwed it, it, yep yep and uh and i think you know the, the that genre in particular kind of celebrate it kind of celebrates it doesn't celebrate getting screwed but it celebrates the common man and the challenges that that each of us has and you know in at the time it was really groundbreaking because Hollywood was all the films of Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood were all escapist. It was all, you know, entertainment to, it was kind of like a, a visual opiate to, 
get people, you know, musicals, you know, MGM had its musicals and, you know, and monster movies and things that were just to get you to kind of forget, you know, that your daily woes. Yes. Especially, and, especially during, and I think a big push of that is, um, the great depression. A, a yeah. lot of those escape reality movies got really big because, uh, it was like, Hey, you have no money. Life sucks right now. Watch this movie. Yeah. About this giant ape. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe it's because of, you know, we're in a pandemic and, and coming off of four years of, of just a shit show. And I, it, it, but it's like, I've been, I've been kind of redrawn back to the genre and, um, uh, I, you know, I, and I think, you know, touch of evil, it, it, what's really interesting about the movie is that, you know, here you've got two cops, it takes place in a border town and it's, um, there's, there's a, a murder that's, that, that's happened. And, um, I think it's really interesting, you know, it deals with racism, overt racism that's oh, yeah. applicable today. Um, Charlton Heston plays a Mexican law enforcement, high ranking uh, official in the Mexican government. Yep. And which is, you know, for the time, you know, they have a white guy playing a Mexican guy. Yeah. I mean, that's racist in and of itself. Yes. Um, but, you know, he plays kind of the moral high, high, you know, he's he is the moral high road of the story. And um, Orson Welles plays this. Um, corrupt, <laughs> corrupt border sheriff, vile, vile, lying, racist, just disgusting, drunken, disgusting yeah. <laughs> just hideous, drunken, you know, just there's nothing redeeming, really redeeming about him. No. Other than the fact that even though he's reprehensible, he does solve the crime. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, in a very weird roundabout way, but yes. Yeah. And that's. You know, I, and I'm fascinated by that. And it's uh, everything that he's repugnant, but at, he still he solves the crime and uh, brings the criminals to justice. And um, Orson Welles was it was really interesting. And I I try to when I write, um, I take these words to heart. Okay. When he was he gave an interview like in the 1970s about this movie and. He said they asked him about the Quinlan character, and uh, and and Orson Welles just laughed and he goes, "Yeah, Quinlan's morally ambiguous," and he said, uh, and he goes, "But you know, every he goes, everybody has their reasons," mm-hmm. and he goes, "Every character has their reasons, and it doesn't matter how despicable they are to them; they think, you know, it's justified for whatever reasons, yeah, yes, whatever life is thrown at them." And he, he had this really interesting quote that I try to apply when, when I when I'm writing. And he said, uh, he goes, you know, the more human that you make the monster, the more interesting it is for the audience. Yes. A million percent. And, yeah. and, you know, and I think that's, you know, if, and if you think about it, the movies where the villain or the bad guy uh, is really memorable and becomes iconic are villains and, and bad guys that that you can relate to in a weird, strange way, and it doesn't matter. They could be cannibals. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. in some weird way, you relate to them because they're in their own twisted, messed up way. They, you know, it they they uh, 
they have their reasons for what they did. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and there are layers of humanity that, that make it interesting. It's the, it's the villains that are so one dimensional. It's just, you know, I, I get bored. I get bored. When I watch a movie when the, when the bad guy is just, just, just horrible. Even like you, you mentioned alien before, you know, the, 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 what, you know, what makes the alien creature I, so intriguing you know, and not just the first movie, but but all the subsequent movies is, you know, you know, that theme of rape and sexual sexual assault, mm-hmm. but also the fact of of motherhood. Yep. And, it, you know, it's like and it takes these these tropes and these uh, these ideas and the filmmakers twist them around to make you re- kind of look at it and go, I never really thought about that. You know, what yeah. that means to be a, to be a parent or a mother or. Uh, or to be, you know, abused or, uh, you know, um, violated. And it's, uh, I, I just think it's fascinating. I, I often think, you know, we're attracted to movies more so by the the villainy than by the, the heroics. Yes, yeah. I'm rambling. See, I've gotten on that hole, man. Dude, I've gotten on that, that, that That's That's why you're here, man. I'm just sipping my coffee, having a great Sunday. I don't know about you, but I'm having a great time. I and and to, to escalate to toot the horn really quick of Alien even further more too. One of the reasons that I that's like one of my favorite movies too is like every, everything you just said 100 a plus correct. But there's also then even to like another layer is um, a little bit of the humanity that you were talking about in villains is the humanity of corporate greed because that's another layer to the film yeah. Alien is you realize this corporation has effectively fucked these people on this ship to just do whatever it takes to bring it back. And again, that's, that's the hook. And even if it, even if you relate to it 10%, you're going to then understand it. And right. like what you're saying with Orson Welles character in this movie. Um, it's, and it's the same thing with touch of evil. I mean, think about, think about um, that Quinlan character. I mean, and, and the being on the border town and the corruption with the local politicians. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and blaming, you know, just um, blaming them, you know, the Mexicans for this or that. I mean, it, um, you know, I that 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 kind of corruption that that kind of motivates the story runs is, you know, kind of the the, the cornerstone of Touch of Evil. Yes. And um, and there's no there's no real escaping it. And in it even, you know, it even touches it even touches the Vargas character. You know, he's, you know, Vargas is on his honeymoon, you know, even, even his relationship with his wife has this, like this, this moral purity to it, that, um, that Quinlan manage manages to corrupt, you know, and get his hooks in. Yeah. And I think I, I love the dichotomy too. You know, Vargas is there on his, you know, is, is basically on the American side of the border on his honeymoon uh, and Quinlan, you know, and that's at the beginning of the movie. And then at the end of the movie, Quinlan is, you know, on the Mexican side of the border with uh, Marlene Dietrich, who runs a whorehouse. Yep. You know, the only relationship, meaningful relationship in Quinlan's life is the woman that runs a whorehouse. Yep. Who makes really good chili. Yeah. And I thought that was, you know, I, I, I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, kind of the dichotomy of those characters. Let's um let's yes let's let's I guess briefly go kind of over like on the 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 overview of the film the spark note summary I guess sort of of it in case anybody listening has not seen this film um I think eventually too just FYI for anyone listening we'll probably not probably we will get into spoiler territory so I guess we'll start with the overview but then 
X amount of minutes later, we'll probably start getting into it. Um, but I, I'm going to start with saying that I'm really, really glad that you shared this movie. It's kind of funny how life has a weird way of coming back to you. Um, when I, when I was in film school, I was, so I was 18 years old and we had to take, a, like a film theory, film analysis class. And, uh, the teacher for that class, I remember he played the opening of this movie, uh, yeah. as a way to, uh, to, to discuss and to talk about how to create tension. Yeah. And I remember, I swear to God, I remember the opening scene from all the way back in when I was 18 years old, I remember that this this opening of this yeah. movie w- will stay in your memory till the end of time because it's, it is amazing. It's one, it's one of the greatest movie openings of all time. And it, there's so many filmmakers afterwards have paid homage to Wells and have have replicated or or done something similar. Um, the, the movie The Player comes to mind. Okay. Um, the opening scene of the player is a direct homage to touch of evil. And they even talk about the length. It's uh, like three minutes and 21 seconds or whatever. And it's um, the thing that makes that opening scene even more remarkable is the, the technology at the time. Yes. If you think about how heavy camera film cameras were in lights and, and how slow the film stock was. So for people that haven't seen it, the, the opening scene is one continuous shot and the tension that you're talking about, it starts off with a close up of somebody putting dynamite in the trunk of a car and the camera pulls back. And in one shot with no edit, you see the, the you see a, a couple get into the car and drive off and through this busy Friday night nightlife in this Mexican border town and they drive blocks and you, and you know that there's a ticking bomb in their car. And as they, they, they weave their way through the crowds of this busy Mexican town, they get to the border and you realize that they're at the border between the U S and Mexico. And as they, and they stop and they talk to border guards and that's when you are introduced to Charlton Heston and his wife, uh, uh, Vargas, who's there on his honeymoon. And as they're talking about the honeymoon, the car drives across the border and blows up. It's all one shot and it's all at night. And, um, it, and it's amazing because you know, as a viewer, you're like, oh my God, there's dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> the yep. And there's and civilians around and yeah. Civilians and, and why, you know, why did they want to kill this guy? Um, and, and it's, and it, it's fascinating. He shot no coverage for it. Um, he, sh- he spent, they, uh, they shot the movie. In Venice Beach, California, if you've ever been to Venice Beach, um, the movie it, the, that scene was shot on Windward Avenue, and um, and it was in kind of a side note, um, Venice Beach, uh, kind of as a location, kind of uh, was run down and past its prime exactly like Orson Welles in his career. Hmm. And he couldn't have picked a better place to shoot it. Um, Venice Beach, Venice Beach, when it was first, when it was first created, it was this beautiful city of canals that was based on Venice, Italy and all the, the, the arches 
that that are the visual for that Mexican border town. Mm-hmm. That's that's those built. Some of those buildings are still there today. Wow. And it's um, the city was all was built. It was these beautiful canals. And the only way to get around the city was by gondola. Hmm. And um, Charlie Chaplin shot the circus there. Uh, Hale Roach shot uh, Spanky and our gang films there. Um, it was it was this beautiful backdrop for for filming. And in the late 1920s, um, the two things happened. Uh, the guy that started the city. Uh, Abbott Kinney passed away and his son kind of took over. It was, a, it was a, it was a kind of a private, it was not part of Los Angeles. Okay. It was its own municipality. And, um, he, his son annexed the city to the city of Los Angeles and Los Angeles, um, was very corrupt and they paid, um, it was kind of the rise of the automobile and, um, they, paved over all of the canals, all hmm. of these beautiful canals to make way for the automobile. And to this day, there's, they, they, um, there's, I think three, there's only like two or three canals left in Venice beach. Wow. And the only reason they're there is because the contractor that was hired by the city, uh, was so corrupt that he stole the money and they ran out of money. And <laughs> <put his job. laughs> And that's a, but, that seems like a, a theme that could even fit in this movie as well, which is kind of funny. Yeah, so, but, but in the late 20s, oil was discovered in Venice Beach. Huh. So the, within the span of like a year, and Venice Beach was like a, this huge tourist destination. It was kind of like Santa Monica. It had this big pier. It had this midway. It, was, it attracted tourists from all over the world. And in the span of a year, when oil was discovered, hundreds and hundreds of oil rigs went up. And there's pictures of like people on the beach, like sunning themselves in this industrial wasteland, <laughs> this toxic dump of oil, and I mean, just horribly and just ugly as shit. Yeah. And um, and that's the that's the city that Orson Welles filmed in. And you can see in some of those night shots in the movie, mm-hmm. the whorehouse at the end, the chase across the bridge when when he gets. When the, uh, when when uh, Quinlan gets shot and falls into the the shitty garbage along the yep, water, yep. that's the canal. That's one of the canals. Interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, and you can see the oil the oil towers, the oil rigs in the background of some of the night shots. But um, you know, I I just love you know just the little things uh, that you know he shot this movie in a city that had been corrupted by greed. And it's a movie about corruption and greed, and it's just like this, just these layer upon layer of of coolness for, you know, to the story that I really think is is really incredible. Who pays for it, Marcia? What if she does? Oh, how long has this been going on, huh? Ever since her father had me fired from the last job, if you want to know. Naturally, he objected to having a Mexican shoe clerk for his son-in-law. So naturally, naturally, you had to put him out of the way. Naturally. Just because he speaks a little guilty, that don't make him innocent. So the the, the the car explodes, and then um, immediately right there is uh, yes, the character's official name is uh, Mike Vargas, played by Charlton Heston. Uh, he's with his wife Susan. The bomb goes off, and then he's effectively thrust into this investigation. Um, kind of, I would say, kind of against because his will. Yeah, and he's, it, it's kind of like, almost, it seems like it's kind of against his will. 
Um, like he's like, ah, shit. Like I gotta do this. Sorry, sweetheart. Bye. And and then that's that. He's when, on his honeymoon. Yeah. And then that's when that's when the rest of the film kicks off. But then what's really interesting about this movie, the thing that I liked is um, the rest of the movie isn't then even really about the car bombing nor the explosion. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's like, that's it is about it, but the rest of the movie is mostly then about the police officers and the crime family that's involved. Right. And that's what it's about. Like, I don't even, if, if, if they do even say the names of the people in the car, I don't even remember them. You know what I mean? It's just like, they're, they're gone because that's, that's, that's the catalyst to start the film. And that's another thing that I loved about this movie is it just starts uh, some older films have a tendency to like, oh, they had to over explain things because people just weren't super privy to film in that form of storytelling. So it was like, we have to spend 20 minutes establishing Mike Vargas and that he's a police detective from Mexico. This film's like, fuck it. Let's just do it live. Let's just go. And they just put a fucking bomb in a trunk. It blows up and then bam, he's, you're in this story and you understand it and it moves you forward. And then... Yeah. We meet the police force um, headed by Orson Welles playing Hank Quinlan, as we've, we've talked about. And then you also meet the uh, the Mexican crime family that is involved in this story. Um, I don't remember that actor's name off the top of my head, but the, the guy that is effectively running the, the yeah. crime family, that actor is amazing. Yeah, that face... That- that that round face with a little mustache and the sweaty the sweaty brow you never you'll never forget that I mean the scene in that the kind of uh, moving forward and you know the scene when he, they kidnap Vargas's wife and are holding her that scene you will never forget no and it doesn't matter if it you know if if it was made in 1958 or black and white or you know it's not color that scene you will never forget no it's a, it's so well done and like he has he has a like there's some people i don't know if there's a term for this but there's some people where like the way light hits them, it just works. And like that scene that you're talking about, he just looks creepy as all fuck. Like the way, like the angles of his face and the lighting in that scene is, it was amazing. It was really, it was really good. Yeah. Wells shot that with, uh, that scene with wider angle lenses. Okay. And played the scene closer up. And also with, uh, with, um, uh, kind of uncomfortable with camera angles. He kind of played against the rule of the thirds and um, and it was lit really stark. I mean, he, everything, everything in that was conceived to make the audience feel uncomfortable. Oh, for sure. And he does a yeah, he does a great job on I think everything in this. And kind of going back to what I was talking about again, where you're watching a movie, but really it's kind of about something else. A, a major word for this film that stands out to me: the film is about prejudice. The film is about uh, issues of again, like. You know, Orson Welles' character is effectively like, well, you know, they're Mexican, so who cares if we frame them? They're lesser people. And it's interesting to see a movie. I don't know if interesting is the right word. There's, I guess, I don't know how to phrase it. There's, There were movies made dating back all the way to 1958 that are talking about issues of things that we are still dealing with to this day. It's relevant. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If you watch that movie today, in light of the Trump administration's treatment of, of uh, people 
from Central America and from Mexico, and you watch this movie and you're go- and you're like, oh my god, yeah. And the themes are are so relevant today, and it, and yet it, they were discussed, you know, over half a century ago, mm-hmm. you know, almost seventy five years ago. And it's uh, it's an eye opener. It can be sad that, you know, there's you know, there's been some progress on some fronts, but others and others. But um, it it really is remarkable. I think, you know, we tend to think of, you know, challenges or problems in the world as unique to our time. Yeah. And that's one of the things about cinema is that it, it reminds you that some of these issues have been discussed and um, top of mind for our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. Yep, they've got deep roots. And and that's why some of these issues are so important to so many people because it's like, you know, they've been dealing, people in Mexico have been dealing with these issues for a very long time. And, you know, there's a history to it. And so it's, it's not just as simple as, some people make it out to be and and to go back and, and see things like this film and go, oh, my God, you know, he was he was talking about these issues all the way back in 1958. The year is currently 2020. And again, like this movie. Well, and, and like in 1958, you don't think I mean, when you think of the 50s, you know, if if you think of the 50s in terms of the way that um, the, the conservative the con- the political conservative right describes the 1950s mm-hmm. as all pure and yeah. all you know the good old days that when things were good yep. for America yep. and then you have a movie where you've got scenes with with these kids you know these crazy kids that are dope dealer you know dope smoking heroin dealing yep. you know it's like yep. you know there, I mean the, the drug dealing is a major part of this movie you know, yes. like in yep. and so is like violence and crime. And it's um, my in the uh, one of the previous episodes with my friend Zeke, we were talking about the show Evis for Family and that show takes place in the early 70s. And we were kind of talking about how that was, you know, the 60s and 70s was very much the explosion of bringing a lot of these issues to the forefront of um, American society. So on kind of that same note, that's why I think this film is doubly interesting because he was already kind of behind that curtain in the 50s. Uh, yeah. with this film of saying, no, these, these things are out there. It's just, uh, you know, like in that same episode, a lot of people like Zeke and I were talking about how they handle um, like women, children, um, and the, and gay culture in the show of Evans for Family. It, it comes from the idea of like, it just wasn't talked about. And that's that's always been one of the major issues. So it's, it's awesome to see Orson Welles making a film talking about these things again right. back in 1958 and, and and the interesting thing is i mean he's so dead on in his observations of um the corruption the corrupting influence of money and politics in uh in american life he's so dead on you know he, he, the movie when it when it was finished universal tried to bury it oh i bet they, they um, you know, Charlton Heston had just won an Oscar and his star was on the rise and they, they universal didn't put out any publicity to support the movie. <laughs> they released it in a couple of theaters in the United States and they tried to make it go away. And it wasn't until I think it was 1959. It was a year later 
the movie was entered into a film festival in I think Brussels, Paris or Brussels, somewhere in Europe. Okay. And it won best picture. Wow. And when it won best picture in Europe, um, Universal was, they actually fired their European distributor for allowing that to happen. And, you know, talk about like the pressure of censorship. Um, you know, that it was alive and well in the fifties, but it really wasn't until, you know, the movie found success in Europe that it, uh, that, you know, it, 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 it found an audience here in the United States. Hmm. Um, in spite of the fact that Universal Studios tried to kill it. Wow. And I thought that was really, really, and I think a lot of it is because of the subject matter. Um, you know, because, you know, you know, the, the you know, there's, it, it's about corruption and drugs and, and, you know, even Marlene Dietrich, you know, she, she's plays, you know, the madam of a whorehouse. Yep. <laughs> Who makes really good chili. Yeah. <laughs> makes great chili. Makes amazing chili, uh, from what I understand. Um, yeah. and, and Orson Welles wish, wishes he was getting fat off that chili, uh, yeah. which I'm sure is an innuendo for anything else. And, um. What's my fortune? been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Well, even, and even early on, there's like, when they're looking, there's a scene in a, in a strip club, too. Yeah, uh, yep. actually shot if I remember correctly. One thing about Marlene Dietrich, again, all these like obscure facts, but um, Marlene Dietrich was in the kind of old, old school Hollywood back from Orson Welles' Citizen Kane days. Okay, um, for, you know, in the in the nineteen thirties, and she was, I mean, she would she was, you know, Hollywood royalty, and Universal didn't even know she was in the movie until they saw the dailies. Orson Welles asked her as a favor to be in it, and as a favor to him, she said yes, absolutely. And when the producers at Universal saw the dailies and they went, "Oh my God, that's Marlene Dietrich," they called her up and they said, "You know, you're not. You know, we didn't even know you. You know, that you're going to be in this. And um, how much? How much is this costing us?" And uh, because the you know the budget was under a million dollars for the movie, and she said. If you put my name in the in the credits, it will cost you far more than you can afford. <laughs> but, but if you don't put my name in the credits, I'll take SAG minimum. Wow, that was like her personal favor to Orson Welles. That's cool to help him get the movie made, and I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Casey, would you take a look in the desk there? Hey, I see some letters or something that isn't. Unless you've already looked the place over. We know better than that, Captain. We will wait for you. Yeah. No deben hacer eso. No tienen ningún derecho de leer mis cartas. Tú eres policía mexicano y debes proteger a los... I don't speak Mexican. I got anything again on derechos aquí. Eres cobarde. Y le tienes miedo a estos gringos. Let's cheap it in English, Vargas. Um, the film, too... When I was... With everything that we've been talking about, again, about its themes, its message... I I always like to think when I watch uh, movies or anything of the sort, I always like to think how I perceive it. And then I always like to think of, you know, how like 
old old grandma old grandma nanners is gonna think of it you know what i mean like <laughs> old grandma nanners old grandma Nan- oh scooby we're gonna smoking go her, we're smoking her corn cob pipe on a out on the front porch spitting chew down in the down below yeah, i saved up a nickel we're gonna go see a movie i i could not like what are those talkies, what are those talkies? <laughs> i think about okay so i think about first i think about there were uh i know you grandma, definitely know this it's present for you from grandma nanner old grandma nanners and um there, there was one of my favorite, one of my favorite film history tidbits. There was, there was the Lumiere brothers. They were French. They created um, the, the, the. Oh my God! What do they call them? The actualities. The. Oh my God! They made movies where it was like people just walking into a factory, um, and then they would go to that factory and say, "Hey, come to our theater, and you can be on. You can see yourself on the big screen, and it's cheap, and just come." And they're kind of some people consider to be you know, the, the, the grandfathers of filmmaking because they also were the first to invent a playback camera. Yeah. And they did uh, trip to the moon. Yep. And, um, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the shorts that they made, all it was, was a train that docks in a station. That's it. It comes around a corner and then it docks in a station and there's steam coming out the front. That's it. People in the theater docked. When the train came yeah. in, in their seats, they yeah. ducked down, and it scared the shit out of them. But but think but think about it though. I mean, this is a, a new medium. It's a new art form, and um and if you think about it, you know, film is a the film is a language. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it has its own language, and it it has its own beat. It has its own timing. It has its own pacing. It has its own rules just like any other language. Oh yeah. And you think about, you know, you talk about the Lumineer, you know, you know, you talk about Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, what what makes that movie great. You talk about, you know, the Lumineer Lumineer brothers. You know, it's like they they actually were were creating these images and they didn't have a language they, yet. They had nothing to and, go and off and of. Yeah. They, they're they're creating language as they go along. And then it was filmmakers after that that they grab onto things and go, oh, what, what, you know, we can, you know, it's like, it's like a child, you know, grasping, you know, mama, papa, you know, they can't form full complete sentences, but it, you gradually build on that, on, on, on that until you get into much more sophisticated ideas that you can express using that language, which Wells does and what uh, uh, Kubrick does and Paz of Glory. And it's, um, yeah, I, I just think it's fascinating to 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 kind of watch that language develop over the last hundred hundred and twenty years. Yeah, it's crazy. To, yeah, that's crazy to think too. Yeah, it's been one hundred and twenty years of filmmaking, and it's the language has changed. Yeah, so much. And um, but the basics haven't. No, exactly. Yeah, and uh, but the thing that the the point that I was kind of talking about too is um, with this is in line with what we were talking about, but is is again. If people ducked in a movie theater because of a train entering a docking station, what the hell did they think of this movie when it came out? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'd kill to be a member of, like, you know, like some Southern Baptist town watching this movie because I bet you a million dollars to one people lost their fucking mind. Like, how dare you say that, you know, any police officer can be corrupt? How dare you, you know, say that Mexicans have equal rights as Americans? And how dare you? I mean, this, this movie, like, 
they're drugging up women. Of you know, there they, there's the scene where um, uh, um, Susan Susan Vargas is is changing in her bedroom and. One of the criminals across the alleyway shines a flashlight right on her while she's changing it, and you see her in her bra. And I was just like, "How the fuck did you get away with this in 1958?" I, I, if I, I would love to go back in time, and and I guarantee there had to have been at least one person to walk out of this theater, at least one. And think, and think that was at the height of of censorship, the industry censorship. And uh, they still, I mean, he pushed the boundaries, man. He totally pushed the boundaries. I like the fact, too, that she just, she, like, just takes it in stride. Her character takes it in stride. Yeah, she, she just. She out the window. What the hell are you looking at? She checks, a, she checks a light bulb at him. And then, and then Charleston Heston's character comes in, and he's like, darling, I can't see you. Turn on the light. And she's like, I can't. <laughs> um... But yeah, this movie, man, it's great. I I I highly recommend it if you're if you're a fan of old cinema. I, but even I don't even want to say this is old cinema again. Like we've been talking about, and this you could you could take the script of this movie and make it in 2020. All you'd have to do is solve some issues on like cell phones. That'd really be about it, you know, because uh, some of the issues could be solved with the cell phone. But um, beyond that, you could. Yeah, it's it's universal. It's a universal story, and that's what it makes it I think so interesting is that it does kind of transcend you know for everything we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a story about it's it's it, it points to something that's universal that each generation tries to deal with, mm-hmm. and that that keeps it relevant. And it doesn't matter that it's black and white. Doesn't matter you know that opening three and a half minute sequence at the time was so revolutionary it and it was revolutionary because he used all thousand you know the film magazine the biggest mag is a thousand foot reel and he he used the entire thousand foot mag he couldn't go any longer he couldn't i mean he he didn't have more time to go it wasn't like i'm just gonna hit the on button it's not like i can hold the camera in my hand (laughs) Play for ten minutes. Yep. He didn't have that luxury. He had a two hundred and fifty pound camera that had to be mounted on the back of a crane that could only, you know, only had a thousand feet of film in it. So, and they had to have so much light because they were shooting at night and the film stocks were slow. And they didn't have, you know, back then they didn't like today. You can use like you know electricity generators, and they had generators back then, but not to the same capacity that they are now. And those lights back then. A, were highly dangerous, and B, super hard to power and operate and run. And yeah, he, there, the, the, yeah, and, and the, the camera, it moves over quite a landscape. And like you were saying, to think about how they lit all of that is bananas. I, yeah. I, um, uh, and they, night. they did the whole thing in one night. Yep. And um, yeah, the technical production of this is, is, is amazing. Um, the thing that I like, too, and I think that stood out to me, um, there is the term subversion of expectations, and I feel like it's used a lot, especially in the last, I want to say, like three, four years of storytelling, but people are doing it wrong, in my opinion, but this film does not. Um, I, I was watching it, and it's like, okay, so, okay, it's, a, it's obviously from square one, it is a film noir, there is no hiding that, but a lot of film noir is the detective in his office, and... Uh, you know, the, the woman who, whose husband has recently gone missing comes in and she hires him for the job and that, that propels him into all of this. So 
again, he's on vacation. He's not even doing his job. He gets pulled into it. And then it's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, he, he's going to be, he's going to crack the case and he's going to solve it. But it subverts your expectation because like you were saying, he, he does not solve the case of the, the trunk bombing. He solves the case of police corruption, you know? And it's like, it, that's, it's really cool. And they build those tropes up in the beginning. Like there's a scene where um, Charleston Heston, Vargas's character, uh, he's walking around and, and one of, the, one of the, the crime family people come up and they throw a vial of acid at him and he dodges it and then he punches the guy and he gets in a fight. And it's, it's kind of building up that he's going to be this action superstar. But besides that, that's really it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's they build all these things up and then and then the reality of what's really going on inch by inch crawls into the story and you understand these characters, their background, their history, and that is a trillion times more interesting than yeah, again, just the super cool detective who can just shoot every bad guy and wins and gets the dame at the end of the day. Like all this dude wants to do is just go back to his hotel room and chill with his wife. That's all he wants to do, you know? Like yeah. I mean, she's kidnapped and, you know, her reputation is tarnished and, you know, by association, Vargas's reputation is tarnished. And, you know, and, and like we said earlier, Quinlan, you know, the corrupt cop, the guy who is just, um, you know, he's using terrible, horrible police methods. At the end of the day, he does solve the crime. And, you know, and to me, it's like, that's kind of what, you know, film noir, you know, what I like about film noir is visually it's stark contrast, black and white. Yet the stories are, are so, so much nuanced layers of gray. Yeah. And I, even like the genre itself is, you know, between that stark black and white visual and the subject matter that's gray I, to me is like really fascinating to watch. And I think it, it elevates it to this whole new level. And, you know, there's certainly film noir that is, that's color. I mean, you look at um, Blade Runner is a great example. I mean, that, that movie was shot in color. It yet, um, you know, it, it still deals with like this gray morass of morality mm -hmm. and, What's, you know, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's real, what's not real. And, um, you know, and I think that's kind of the hallmark of a really good um, film noir and, and a really and really good storytelling. Yes. And, I, you know, it, it, like to me and, th and that gives it, you know, it's 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 at the same time, it's cinematic and by definition unreal. And yet it strives to show show a mirror on the reality the of you know life that you know life is complicated and there are levels of gray you know we're all compromised in some way and um you know and i think that i really like that kind of contrast i don't i think it makes it very very interesting yeah and it it's it kind of it it's um I I played this. I promise this is gonna connect. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I love Dungeons and Dragons. One of my favorite games. I play with my friends. It's a great time. And one of my favorite things to do is to put the my players. I run the game, so I put my players into situations of like, what would you, what would you do? Because both situations are shitty. So what's the lesser of two evils? And that to me is fascinating. And this movie has a lot yeah. of that as well. Um, 
as we've been talking about, there's a lot of police corruption, but then there is also the idea of the police involved in the corruption know there's corruption, and eventually we do get one whistleblower, but it takes quite yeah. an immeasurable amount for him to get to that place. And yeah. when he does, you're like, you're cheering him on because that's a theme that, again, from 1958, which well, is like, we, we got to take care of our own at any means, uh, by any cause. And it's like, holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And think, I mean, you raise a really good point, too. Think about, you know, and this was made before the term, you know, that the, the, the blue line, you know, that solid line of, you know, the, the of police. Yeah. Think about that stuff. You know the, the police in that story, like the under the Quinlan's underlings. You know, you know, no one speaks up, no one says anything, and like think think about that in terms of like what happened this last summer with George Floyd. Yep. And you know, and the the you know, you know, what's the worst crime that that corrupt police officer that killed Floyd, or the three police officers that stood by and let mm-hmm. let him do that? Exactly. You know? And it's like you know, it, it, it they're they're monstrous acts. They're different acts, but they're just as monstrous. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and again, you know that that's that that is touched upon in this movie with yeah. him. It's, uh, in 1958. 1958 is crazy, and it's yeah. Again, this movie, I really do think you could just pick up the script and, and make the film today, and you could leave all of it the same. Obviously, new actors, but that's it. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a good film, and I like um, um, Paths of Glory. We'll obviously talk about that film, but the one thing about that movie is it was one of the first movies. It might actually be the first movie to have not just like a, a, a an army personnel, but you know, like a, a general, a commander, to have a scar on his face that had never been done in film, from my understanding, and. Um, this has got to be one of the first films. Touch of Evil has to be one of the first films, I would imagine, to talk about, uh, again, police corruption and and covering for your own. So it's kind of interesting that we both have films that we picked that were kind of, I would imagine, if not first, one of the first in said category. Well, the, the, there are actually other uh, uh, film noir uh, examples of noir films from like the 40s and 50s okay. that, deal, that do deal with um, police corruption, but not at not on the nuanced level that this does. Okay. And um, um, I but uh, I had no I didn't know that about Pants of Glory. That yeah, there was uh, it was it was I, I it was it was the first I'm like ninety percent certain of this that it was the first movie to have a military personnel have scars because up to that point, you know, all those army movies. Uh, of the early, early days of cinema, it was always about, you know, uh, making these military people look like absolute shining heroes. That was always the number one thing. And Kubrick was like, no, when you fight and you go to war, you get scars. And then that scar is also representative of that, that character. Uh, yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that later. But, um, but uh, yeah, they're definitely, I would say, films that, and we've been talking about this, that were very much pioneers into subject matter and ideas uh, that, again, I think still work great today. Um, there was also another point that I wanted to bring up. Um, there is a character in this movie that I feel like if I was born in the era and the South would have been me. <laughs> and that character is the hotel clerk. 
You know who, what, who, what actor that is? I don't. I'm really terrible with actors' names, so I don't. It's, it's Dennis Weaver. Okay. It's, it's the very first role that Dennis Weaver was ever in. And Dennis Weaver went on he, in the 70s. He was a big um, a big television star. Um, oh, there was a show, the Sunday night. It was like the same night that Columbo. It was like there was a series of these crime movies in the 70s made for TV. It was like um, Columbo. And then Dennis Weaver played this cop from like Montana that ends up in New York City. <laughs> I mean, it was like uh, this. This was like one of his very first roles, one of his very first speaking roles. That's that's uh, what that's funny. Right? I was gonna bring that up earlier, but I was watching it and I was just like, I, I just, I was like, yeah, that that would have been me if I had been born in that day and in that era. So I just felt very, very connected to that person. Um, but there was a lot of other great things with this film. I mean, it's um, one of my favorite lines is, and again, this goes back to talking about having Quinlan be, you know, he's he's a he's a person. He wakes up every morning, he drinks his coffee just like us, he ties his shoes just like us, and he goes to work just like us. But you know, his thinking is that he is doing something good. He's a cop. People automatically love him for that because I'm sure there were moments in his life that he, you know, did the right. thing. Thing. you'd have to imagine at least one or two of them were you know done correctly and and then slowly this case is he's 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 the, the cracks are starting to show and he knows it and you know the wire is getting down and uh i can't remember who says it but somebody shouts at him you're a killer and his response is i'm a cop and i was like oh damn like that 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 I think that's probably my favorite line out of the whole movie because that it's a, that's a that's a sentence that it again it means one thing but it can also mean a lot of other things as well and to you could probably talk about that to yourself for like hours and yeah. um and there's a lot of that in this movie again where there's there's something going on but under the surface there's there's other things going on as well that I think will stay with you and and make you think and I think that's always like the the greatest thing any story in any art medium in this world can do is you you walk away from it and you think about it and it stays with you. And this movie, one million percent will do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even even the title. I like the title. I'm glad that he changed. The original title of, of the project was Badge of Evil. Okay. And I'm glad he changed it to Touch of Evil. And you know, I think it plays into the 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 idea that we're all corruptible. Yes, if we're all um, it, we we all uh, are susceptible to, to corruption and to um, tolerating corruption to a certain extent. You know, it's like the, your idea, like you know, is you know, it, you know, who cares if the cop is corrupt as long as he gets the job done? Exactly, and it's like, is that is that. It, it, it doesn't affect my life, so mm -hmm. you know. Um, but you know the fact that it does affect other people's lives. Um, but then I, that it's just a, a touch of evil. I just think I, it's understated and poetic, and I just it's a brilliant title. Oh, a million percent, and um, it goes into like again. It's everybody in this movie, maybe with the exception of Charles and Heston characters, you know, has has themselves a touch of evil, and it's it's slowly exposed and. Like what you were saying with with the corruption, it, it, it that always kind of reminds me of. Um, I love the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. That's it's one of my favorite movies, and to me, that movie is very much about 
like, what would you do in this situation? Because there's an equal chance that you would have been exactly like this guy had you been making the copious amounts of money, yeah. you know, went through the greed that he did that again, like, yeah, I mean, I like to think that I would never midget toss a midget, but I, I probably would. Exactly. And it's like, there are these things inside of us that it's like, it's easy to say, you know, oh, he's an asshole. But again, if you were in that boat, you have just the equal amount of doing said evil things. So it's the choices that we make that truly define us. And and so Touch of Evil goes into that where, you know, again, Orson Welles' character, he's deciding to do this. And it, it's it's beyond evident. You know, he's planting evidence. He's planting, you know, the dynamite on people that had nothing to do with the crime. And then you yeah. also, you know, at the beginning too, it's like right away you understand, okay, this is the, these are the criminals. This is the crime family. They're, they're the bad guys. But you also learn to see the humanity of them as well. And you can hopefully understand maybe even then how they got there as well. You know, no one's born a criminal. You do have to, you know, you, you, you work into it. But even with that, there are reasons for it. And I feel like this film kind of does that as well. Um, it could have gone deeper, but it's, it's still there. And you, you, you learn the humanity side of, of everybody in this story. And it's an awesome, awesome package that is beautifully wrapped with a bow. And it's, it's ready and waiting because it's, it's been out for a long time. So uh, if you haven't seen Touch of Evil and you're looking for just a awesome, great film to uh, sit back, watch, and think about, I, I would highly recommend this. And I, I think Mike would too. You picked it. So um, yeah. and just just a plug, if you are if you haven't seen it and you want to watch it, um, uh, there uh, try to get your hands on the Criterion Collection print okay. because that is the most pristine. They went back to the original negative and did the film transfer and, into high def. And it is the cleanest, uh, best looking copy of the film. I've seen it. I've seen it. Original versions that are dirty and scratched and dark. And it's like a dub of a dub of a dub. And it's if you can get the Criterion Collection, it's worth it. Okay. I um, We have very limited space in my Chicago apartment. So... Uh, I have a tendency to purchase movie. I bought it on iTunes, and in my opinion, I I, I think it looks great. It it had a four K. It said it had a four K restoration, so I okay. I think that looked it looked amazing when I watched it. Um, they, they may have pulled that off of the Criterion transfer, which is good. I I yeah, I don't know for a million percent fact, but I can say it it looked really good on iTunes as well. So if you are after a digital version or uh, a physical copy, yeah, I both of those options I think would be uh, superb. Um, is there anything else? I, I don't. I just want to make sure I'm not taking anything away from anything else that you may have wanted to say about this. Um, I just want to again say what the, you know Charlton Heston said. You know when he was talking to the producers at Universal, uh, that Orson Welles. You know he's a pretty good director. <laughs> That's funny. There is. Um, there's also two. I'm sure you've seen this, Mike. But there is uh, for anyone at home listening. I swear it will be worth your time. Stop everything you're doing and sometime today, hop on YouTube and type in Orson Welles. It's either, I think it's a champagne commercial. Is it champagne? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where he's drunk. Yeah. 
it's a it's a whole montage it's hilarious uh somebody hired him to do i think it's a champagne it's either champagne yeah. or wine or something either I think way it's, it's a champagne it's a champagne commercial yeah and they bring him in to be the main actor for this champagne and they made the mistake of actually giving him champagne yeah and Orzumon, each take he gets more he gets drunk oh my god and he's sitting at a table with a couple and like you can see the couple's face he just he's like and then i'm gonna champagne and go do great and it's like you can just see their face like i don't know what the fuck to do right now and this is orson wells like should i smile should i be freaked out oh my god it is it's hilarious and it is it's absolutely awesome. worth your time well, um, okay. Well, I thank you, thank you, thank you, Mike, for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for everybody for for tuning in. I think I haven't been saying that. Also, I'm very new at this, so thank you for uh, chiming in. The movie has been "Touch of Evil" by Orson Welles. Check it out. Very much, very much worth the watch. Very much worth your time. And we will uh, be back. Mike and I will be back uh, the next episode to talk about "Passive Glory" by Stanley Kubrick. So thank you very much, everybody. How could you arrest me here? This is my country. This is where you're going to die. That wasn't no miss, Vargas. I was just to turn you around. I don't want to shoot you in the back. Unless you're Rollin. Try to run for it. <laughs>